If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. everyone welcome back to another episode of all crime no cattle a texas true crime podcast i am shay and i'm erin and there's been a lot going on in texas we've had droughts floods wildfires a lot's happened this month and i hope everybody's doing okay especially in dallas and fort worth where they had some really huge dangerous floods happen hopefully you're all safe and we're here to bring you another episode of this show that i'm pretty excited about erin has told me it's unique so I'm, in, I'm interested to see uh, how unique it is and in what way. So we'll see. Yeah, it is a really unique case. Something happens in this case that I don't think we've ever seen before on this show. And I mean, it's just in general a very unique circumstance. But first, before we get to that, let's begin with our sources. First up is the Investigation Discovery Channel show, The Devil Speaks. The episode on this case is episode one of season two, entitled Evil in East Texas. There's also a short segment on the TV show The New Detectives. The episode is called Texas Rangers from season four, episode 11. This case was also covered in the newspapers at the time, with almost all coverage coming from the Associated Press or the United Press International. And then those articles were picked up and republished in multiple different newspapers, both here locally in Texas, as well as on a national level. And finally, we have court documents, including the opinions rendered by the Court of Appeals of Texas. For this episode, we are going back down to the lower Rio Grande Valley in deep south Texas, to the small town of La Feria. La Feria is located about 30 miles north of the Mexico border. And like many border towns, there is a lot of Mexican historical and cultural influence. In fact, La Feria means the fair in Spanish, and the town was named that because of a fairground that was built there in the late 1700s. It's a farming and ranching community, but it's also a bit of a tourist town because of its proximity to the coast. It's only about an hour's drive or so to get to the beach. Today, La Feria has a population of about 7,500 people. But back in the 80s, when this case was taking place, about 3,500 people lived there. So it's a very small town. 
Okay, so it's down in the lower Rio Grande Valley, but also in like the Rio Grande Delta area near Matamoros and Brownsville. Yes. Okay. Exactly. Gotcha. And if you're a wrestling fan, you might be interested to know that La Feria is the birthplace of NXT and WWE superstar Raquel Gonzalez, now going as Raquel Rodriguez. That's my girl. You know it. That's right. In the summer of 1982, Billy Staten and Leticia Castro were in love. Billy was a construction foreman, and Leticia, who went by Letty, was a fourth-grade teacher at Buckner Elementary School in Farr, Texas, located about 25 miles west of La Feria. The young couple, both 26 years old, were engaged in planning their wedding, scheduled for August 7th. Billy also had a two-year-old daughter from a previous relationship. Now, in order to protect her identity, I'm going to be referring to Billy's daughter by a fake name. We'll just call her Heather. Billy didn't get to see Heather that often, though, as the custody arrangement he had with Heather's mother meant that he only got to see her every other weekend. But Billy was in the process of filing to modify the custody agreement so he could have more time with Heather. And Letty was supportive of this because she loved Heather and got along with her really well. And I think that makes sense, Letty being a fourth grade school teacher, that she was probably really good with kids. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's also a good sign that he wants to spend more time with his daughter. Uh, he sounds like a good guy. I, I don't know. I'm, I always have my detective glasses on and I'm always looking for who's a good guy and who's a bad guy. Yeah, <laughs> exactly right. What's your role in this case? Well, as you can imagine, the summer of 1982 was a really busy time for them. Billy trying to go through these custody modifications as well as them planning their upcoming wedding. Sure, there's a lot going on. But suddenly, one weekend in July, Billy and Leticia both disappeared. Billy's family first noticed something was amiss because they knew it was his weekend to have Heather, and they'd been planning a big family trip to go boating and swimming. That doesn't sound good. Yeah, the weekend passed by without Billy ever contacting them. In the meantime, Letty's family also became concerned after not hearing from her for several days. She was very close with them, and they were used to talking to her basically on a daily basis. Yeah, tight family, probably call each other all the time. Yeah, exactly. Then, the following Monday, neither Billy nor Letty showed up to their jobs. Now, again, Billy was a construction foreman, he has a team of people underneath him, and she's a teacher with students. These aren't jobs that you just no-call, no-show to. You no. know, This was very unusual for the both of them. So Leticia's brothers stopped by their trailer that Leticia and Billy shared, hoping to find them or a note that they'd left behind or some kind of clue that might indicate where they were. But there was nothing. Nothing ominous like blood or signs of a struggle. Nothing missing or out of place. Okay, well, not necessarily a horrible sign yet. It, it could have been worse, like you said, blood. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But they did notice that Billy's car was missing. So with the wedding only a few weeks away, the families hoped that maybe the couple had just run off and eloped and that mm. they'd hear from them again soon. But after a few more days, with still no word from either of them, the families contacted law enforcement and made a missing persons report. Now, Laferia didn't have a police department at the time, so the Texas Rangers stationed in the nearby town of Harlingen got the case, mm. and it was assigned to Texas Ranger Bruce Castile. In addition to making the missing persons report, Billy's family also hired a private investigator to search for them. That's probably smart. Get more hands on deck. 
try and get some other people to try and find them or track them down. Yeah, absolutely. A really smart thing to do. And you can see sort of their desperation to figure out where they were. They Mm -hmm. knew something was wrong. The first thing Ranger Castile did was talk to the families to find out more about the missing couple, as well as pinpoint when they were last seen. One of Leticia's brothers told him that he'd last seen them when he'd stopped by their trailer on Friday, July 16th at around 6 p.m. He said that they told him that they were about to head out to go pick up Heather because it was Billy's weekend with her. No one had heard from Billy or Letty after that night. So Ranger Castile paid a visit to Heather's mother and Billy's ex-wife, Sherry Wolf. Sherry told the ranger that their custody arrangement was that Billy would pick up Heather every other Friday night at 7 p.m. But Sherry explained that on Friday, July 16th, he never showed up. She said that she waited for them but eventually gave up and she took Heather to her mother's house for the weekend. So at this point, we know that at 6 p.m., the couple mentioned they were about to go pick up Heather, but Sherry's saying that they never arrived. So it sounds like their intention was definitely there. Yeah, absolutely. So it seems like the couple must have disappeared sometime around this time, Friday night between 6 and 7 that's p.m. A, that's a tight window. Exactly, yeah. And to have that really quickly, that's, that's pretty good. Yeah. Well, the ranger also asked Sherry to talk about the nature of her relationship with Billy, how well they got along, for example. Sherry explained that theirs had been a quick romance, marriage, and pregnancy when they were both very young. Billy had been about 23 or 24, and Sherry had been about 17 or 18. Their marriage lasted less than a year, and they were divorced within a few months of Heather's birth. In the two years since, Sherry had remarried to a farmer named Paul Wolfe, and she was pregnant with their first child together. So at this time, Sherry was about six months pregnant. Sherry also admitted to the ranger that her relationship with Billy was quite strained, and they'd been having custody issues regarding Heather. Right, yeah. They, we know they, they were going to court to do, rearrange the custody agreement. Yes, exactly. But it turns out that the story goes a little bit deeper than that. Castile went to Billy's family as well as his attorney to find out more information about this, and it became clear how contentious the relationship between Billy and Sherry really was. You see, Sherry was claiming that whenever Billy came to pick Heather up, The girl would begin crying inconsolably, screaming that she didn't want to go with him. She said that Heather didn't like her father and was scared of him. In addition, she claimed that Billy was always showing up late and that he was rude and abusive towards her and her husband, Paul. The accusations had led to one recent court appearance, and it was expected that there would be more on the horizon. So it looked like it was going to be a very long, drawn-out legal battle between the two of them. Mm. Billy, on the other hand, argued that Heather's crying at pickup was partly due to her age. Remember, she was two years old, so... Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a time where it's kind of developmentally normal to throw temper tantrums, act up a little. Yeah, and also, like, get scared when you're leaving your mom and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And it also makes sense that she didn't really know him based on how little time he was able to spend with her, only seeing her every other weekend. Right. And that's part of the reason why Billy was filing to amend the custody agreement, because he wanted more time with her. As far as the other grievances, Billy claimed that he was always on time and always polite. Billy had been really frustrated by the whole thing because it was a he said, she said situation. He felt like he couldn't prove that what Sherry and Paul were saying wasn't the truth. 
Yeah, it sounds like a real war of words situation. Exactly. And so he had turned to his attorney for advice. His attorney told Ranger Castile that he'd suggested to Billy that he wear a recording device to secretly tape his interactions with Sherry and Paul when he came to pick up Heather. That way, if they claimed he said or did anything he didn't do, Billy would have proof that they were lying. However, the attorney said that he didn't know whether or not Billy had taken his advice. Wow, that's pretty ridiculous that you have to go to that nth degree and those steps to basically wear a wire just to protect yourself in court so that you get to have a relationship with your daughter. Yeah, definitely. But, you know, in Billy's case, it was the one thing he knew to do to try to defend himself, really. Yeah. Then, on July 29th, 13 days after Billy and Leticia went missing, a pilot crop dusting over farmland spotted a vehicle partially submerged in a drainage canal. The car was pulled from the water, and the vehicle registration number matched that of Billy's missing car. Oh no. The car had been set on fire, and then the whole thing, both inside and outside, had been entirely smeared with mud. In addition, a large rock was found still sitting on the accelerator. Oh, to drive it off into the drainage ditch. Yes, exactly. Wow, that's like a thing you'd see in movies. Yeah. Okay. And then it's also covered in mud, again, to destroy evidence. It obviously was set on fire, again, to remove evidence. But no bodies are in the car. No bodies, but obvious signs of foul play here. Yeah, yeah, definitely. A large-scale search of the area around where the car was found began. And over four days, a team of over 100 officers poured over the area, looking for any trace of the couple. But nothing was found. Because this was a small, close-knit community, 3,500 people, the news that Billy and Letty were missing and now presumed dead was huge. To try to tap that potential, law enforcement created a special hotline for the public to call in with any tips about the case. Hmm. You know, and in this case, I think a hotline might actually work better than in a major metropolitan area because you get so many ridiculous tips. Like if you have a hotline like in Fort Worth or Dallas or Houston versus a tiny, tight-knit community like this, you might actually get really good tips if any come in since they all probably know each other and it is a small community. Yeah, and I would imagine you would get fewer tips so you would have more time to investigate the leads that you do get. Yeah. It's like quality over quantity, right? Yeah, I would guess. Well, then Ranger Castile received a call from a woman who had been the manager of the rental property where Sherry and Paul Wolf had been living. She told Castile that the couple had been renting a house from her since February of that year. So they'd been living there for about five months. But then suddenly, on Saturday, July 17th, they had called into the office inquiring about moving to another property. And in fact, they'd moved that very same weekend. The manager of the rental said that the whole thing happened so fast that she didn't even know they were thinking about moving until the following Monday when they handed in the keys to her. Wow, that is a really fast move. We, we just did a move. How do you move that fast? <laughs> exactly. It's very strange, isn't it? Especially considering that this was the same weekend that Billy and Letty had gone missing. So you have a missing couple whose last known location was that they were headed to Sherry and Paul's house, 
And then the very next day, it seems as though they are scrambling to move away from that house. To me, that seems like something may have happened there at that home. Exactly. So that is Red Flag City, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, with this new evidence in hand, Ranger Castile was able to get a search warrant for the house. Wow. And so how long has it been now since they've gone missing? You said 13 days with the missing car was found. And then how long has it been since they went missing to this point? I'm just trying to... It's only been a few days after they found the car at this point. I was trying to gauge like how much time had elapsed. So like there might still be a lot of evidence if there is any at that house. That's right. And that's exactly what they were hoping for. Okay. So investigators entered the now empty home and obviously all the furniture, everything is is gone from the home. Sure. But in the living room, they look at the carpet and they see that there's a large stain sort of in the middle of the room. They lifted the carpet and discovered that the underside was also stained, but it appeared as if red paint had been applied over the stain as if to cover something up. Huh. There were also multiple areas in the living room for example, on door frames, curtains, and moldings that appeared to have specks of blood. And there looked to be bloody transfer stains near the bathroom and on the front door. Testing soon confirmed that all of this, including the stain on the carpet, was indeed human blood. Yeah, and it's starting to sound like we found the crime scene. Exactly. Now, this was 1982, so the pinnacle of testing blood at the time was blood type analysis. Unfortunately, the red paint that had been sprayed over the bloody carpet prevented blood type analysis for that stain. But several of the spatters on the walls were tested and found to be type A, the same blood type as Billy Staten. Now, the specks of blood throughout the living room were linear elliptical drops, i.e. cast-off patterns from blood being flung from a weapon. So, as you said, this is clearly a crime scene. Someone had been beaten in the living room and then bled out on the floor, leaving behind a large pool of blood. Investigators also noticed that outside the home, there were some large decorative rocks, and one was missing. There was still this big indentation in the dirt where one used to be. Oh, wow. What a, what a keen eye to spot that. Yeah. And that, was that the rock that was used to weigh down the accelerator? Well, they took the rock and they put it in that hole and it fit exactly into the hole. Okay, wow. Yeah. So with the investigation now focused squarely on Paul and Sherry Wolf, something unexpected happened. On August 6th, Paul Wolf came forward and with his attorney by his side, said that he was willing to confess to the murders of both Billy Staten and Leticia Castro. Wow. Okay. Right? That's abrupt. Exactly. Very surprising to the investigators. So, of course, they sit down and hear what he has to say. Paul said that what Sherry had told Ranger Castile originally was true, that on July 16th, they'd sat around waiting for Billy to come by to pick up Heather, but he never came. So eventually Sherry got frustrated and took Heather to her mother's. Paul said that after they left, he also left the house to go run an errand. And while he was out, he spotted Billy and Leticia driving in Billy's car. They flagged each other down, and Paul said they all drove back to his house. He said that Letty stayed in the car while he and Billy got out to talk. Billy asked where Heather was, and Paul explained that Sherry had grown tired of waiting for him and had left with her. Paul said that Billy became really angry and pushed past him into the house to look for them. 
Paul said that he tried calling Sherry on her mother's phone so she could calm him down, but the line was busy, and that made Billy even more furious. He said Billy came at him, hitting him and trying to choke him. He said he was able to push Billy off of him, which gave him a second to look around to find something to defend himself with. He saw an iron bar leaning against the wall, and he picked it up. And as Billy came at him again, he hit Billy in the head with the iron bar, and Billy fell to the ground. He said that Leticia must have overheard the sound of the struggle because she suddenly burst into the house. When she saw Billy lying on the floor, Paul said that she flew into a rage and she also attacked him. He still had the iron bar in his hand, and so he hit her with it, and Leticia also went down. So he's claiming self-defense in this case? Yes. Oh my gosh. Paul said that he was scared and he didn't know what to do. So he put the bodies into Billy's car and he drove out to his father's land where he dumped each of them in separate drainage canals. He was adamant that he killed both Billy and Leticia in self-defense and that Sherry had known nothing about it. He agreed to lead investigators to the bodies. This sounds like he's protecting Sherry, honestly. Like, I don't believe that this happened. This seems ridiculous. It sounds a little bit preposterous that you accidentally killed two people in self-defense. You know what I mean? It's With, with it's, a big metal pipe? Yeah. And then hid the car and the bodies? Like, if it's self-defense, why wouldn't you just call the police? Well, he said it was scared that it happened so fast and then they were dead. And so he... Okay, if that's the story he wants to go with. It seems outlandish, but all right, he's this is what he's decided to do. Yes. Either way, he's going with this story, and he's also going to lead them back to the bodies? Yes, but it turns out, though, that his help wasn't quite needed, at least to find Leticia. On the same day Paul gave his confession, the private investigator who'd been hired by the family discovered Leticia's body deep in a remote drainage canal. Her body had been sitting in water for three weeks and was badly decomposed, but it was obvious just by looking at her that she had suffered extensive head injuries and that part of her skull was missing. The area was searched, and on the ground overlooking the canal, investigators found a 20-gauge shotgun shell. A later autopsy confirmed that Letty had been shot in the head with a shotgun and that pellets were still lodged in her collarbone. Okay, so like we thought, Paul's story is missing some critical details here. Exactly. He never mentioned anything about a shotgun. Okay, so question. Was she weighed down in this deep canal? No. Oh, I would assume if she wasn't weighed down, she would float. Yeah, she was found on top of the water. It was only a few inches of water, so it was a low canal, and but it was a deep canal. Oh, okay, so it's just like a lot of... A lot of stratigraphy to get down to where she was. Yes, but only a few inches of water. Gotcha. Paul himself led investigators to Billy's body the very same day. So ultimately, both Billy and Leticia were recovered on August 6th, the day before they were supposed to be married. Oh, that's crushing. Yeah. Billy's body was found in a different canal than Letty, several miles away from where his vehicle was discovered in the ditch. Like Letty... Billy's body had been submerged in several inches of water, and his body was badly decomposed. A later autopsy confirmed that Billy had died from brain injuries due to extensive skull fractures. 
The skull was so badly injured that there was a large crack across the top from ear to ear, and the left side of the skull was missing completely. From what remained of the skull, the pathologist found three areas of trauma from at least three different blows to the head. The pathologist concluded that the pattern of damage to the skull indicated that Billy's head had either been resting on the ground or pinned against something while it was being struck, and that it endured multiple blows. So once again, none of that was consistent with Paul's statement that he'd hit Billy as they were in the middle of a fight. Yeah, that doesn't sound like self-defense. Yes. But there was something very, very special that investigators also discovered along with Billy's body. When they pulled him up from the drainage canal, they noticed a rectangular shape underneath his shirt. They lifted his shirt up and discovered that it was a mini-cassette tape recorder taped to his stomach. Oh, so he did record his conversation. Exactly. Now, Ranger Castile had been aware of the possibility that Billy had been wearing some kind of recording device around the time of his disappearance. But he'd assumed that the device would be big and blocky enough to have been discovered by anyone who might have done him harm. But Billy had been smart enough to have purchased a relatively small device, for the time anyway, and somehow his killer never found it. But this thing wasn't still running, like he got thrown in water. Well, the machine's record button was still depressed, so it meant that the tape might have been running during Billy and Letty's murder. Yeah, interesting. So this is huge. The problem, of course, was that, like the bodies, the mini-cassette had also been sitting in murky water for three weeks. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the chances that the tape would still be usable at this point seemed extremely thin. But Ranger Castile sent it off to the FBI lab anyway, hoping that they'd be able to work some magic. Special Agent Keith Spoonholtz, who worked in the field of magnetic tape analysis, was the one to examine it. He said that the tape was in such bad condition that there was mold growing on the tape inside the cassette. Oh, wow. Yeah. But he was able to clean off the tape and make two copies, one an exact copy with no processing or filters and an enhanced copy. And after only one week, Agent Spoonholtz reported that they were able to restore the recording in its entirety and that it was exactly what investigators had been hoping for. Billy had accidentally made a recording of his and Leticia's final moments alive. Oh my God. Yeah. So let's go over the contents of the tape according to the official transcript produced by law enforcement and entered into the record. The recording begins with someone clearing his throat and saying, I'll be back in a minute. Hang on. Now, given the context of why we know Billy was recording, it makes sense that this was Billy speaking to Leticia as he was headed into Sherry and Paul's house to pick up Heather, just like he'd been advised to do by his attorney. You can then hear the sounds of Billy's boots walking over a wooden porch, just like the one at the house where Paul and Sherry lived at the time. You can hear Billy knocking on the door, and a male voice, presumably Paul, says, come on in. And Billy responds, thank you. Billy can then be heard saying, hello, little one, and there is a babbling response from a young child. Of course, this can only be Heather. Oh, wait. Oh, no. Heather was there? Yes. And as I can see from your reaction, yeah, this was a complete shock because... 
Paul had always maintained that neither Heather nor Sherry had been there that last night when Billy came. Why would you have her be there? I'm assuming if it's premeditated, like, that's a real horrible thing. Oh, we're going to find out, I guess. Well, Billy starts talking to Heather about what they were going to do that weekend, and he asks if Heather wants to go ride in the boat. So they were referring to that trip that they were supposed to go to that weekend with Billy's family. Heather responds no, that she doesn't want to go, and she starts crying. Billy tries encouraging her a little, telling her that they were going to go have fun and go swimming. And then another voice chimes in, the voice of an adult woman. Which I'm guessing this is Sherry. That's what it seems like. She asks Heather if she doesn't want to go, and Heather again responds no. Billy, still trying to encourage her, says that the water will feel good, they'll take some sandwiches and have a picnic. At this point, it sounds like Heather is starting to come around a little, and she asks where Letty is. Billy responds that Letty is outside waiting for her, and that she was going to go on the boat trip too. Heather continues to cry a little and asks about a few other people. It sounds like these were friends and family members of Billy's. Yeah, people she's used to experiencing time with with them. Yes, and he tells her that they could go see those people that weekend as well. So he's trying to get her pumped for his visit. Suddenly, in the middle of this conversation, two loud thudding noises can be heard, and then a moan, and then the sound of three more thuds. And thud is truly the best way to describe this noise. It's a solid, striking noise, and it is the sound of Billy getting hit in the head. In the background, Heather begins crying and screaming, and the sound fades as if she's been taken out of the room. Paul says, get him, get him, hurry up. And although the words are unintelligible, a different male voice responds. For several minutes, all that can be heard on the tape is the sound of Billy's haggard breathing, as well as a few groans. Then, Sherry's voice can be heard saying, quote, get him up, get him out of here, the front door. Now, hit him again. The awful thudding noises can be heard again five times. Paul's voice says, ah, Glenn, look at the fucking mess you made. And the other person, apparently named Glenn, responds, but the words are unintelligible. Paul can be heard asking someone to move a car, but the voice of Glenn replies, what about here? You go ahead, you know, I'm scared as shit. After a few moments, the sound of a vehicle can be heard in the background. Then Paul's voice can be heard saying, honey, help me drag him over. And what's the matter, Glenn? You can hear lots of muffled noises, and it seems as if this is the sound of Billy's body being moved. Then there is the sound of a vehicle starting up and driving, and the driving continues for about 10 minutes on the tape. The worst part about this is you can clearly still hear the sounds of Billy breathing, but by the time the car stops and reaches its destination, you can't hear Billy's breathing anymore. This is horrible, man. Yeah, it's awful. After the vehicle comes to a stop, you can hear doors opening and closing, as well as other background noises. After a few moments, Paul says, go get the gun out of the car, Glenn, and then comes the sound of a single shotgun blast. There's a sound again of driving, and then of Billy's body being pulled from the car and dumped into the drainage canal. The men's voices can be heard, but it's not clear what they're saying. The car drives off, 
and then there's silence on the tape until it runs out. Now, if you are interested in hearing this audio, the episode of The Devil Speaks that I mentioned up top and that we'll have cited in the show notes includes portions of the actual recording. Fair warning, just like we went over, it is very graphic and they do present the actual moments of the murder on the audio. So it is something that you would have to sit through and listen to. Um, So it is a little intense, but it is available if you are interested in that. Normally on your cases that have extra audio and stuff, I would normally go and like watch it and listen to it. But in this case, I think I'm good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, there was no mention on the recording of Leticia, but I'm assuming that that go get the shotgun and the shotgun blast is the shotgun blast that hits her in the head. Yes. Okay. And so at some point in the recording, they get her and apprehend her in some way, and she's in the cars or vehicles with them, and then is finished off with the shotgun. Yes, that's correct. Remember that the recording device was on Billy, Mm -hmm. and for at least the first part of this interaction, they were separated. Letty was still in the car, and Billy was in the home. So we really don't know just from the tape exactly what happened to Leticia yet, except we do hear the shotgun blast on the tape, which we know she was shot with a shotgun. Right. From start to finish, the tape was 23 minutes long, but it illuminated the full story of what had happened to Billy Staten and Leticia Castro. And it was a far cry from the story being told by Paul Wolfe. First of all, the tape proved that not only were Heather and Sherry both present in the home, but that they were both witnesses to Billy's murder. In fact, it suggested that Sherry was complicit in the murders as well. There are no sounds of protest coming from her when Billy was being hit, and she's in fact heard encouraging them to hit Billy again. Yeah, she was barking orders. Yeah. It's also clear that there was nothing that triggered the attack. Billy was sitting and having a conversation with Heather when he's out of nowhere, he gets struck. Yeah, it, it seems like an ambush. Exactly. And finally, the tape also proved that there was another person named Glenn, who was both a witness of and participant in the murders, as well as the dumping of the bodies. Because we know that Glenn was there when the shotgun blast was heard after they had already started dumping bodies. So, of course, the next question is, who is this Glenn person? Well, thankfully, it didn't take long to figure it out. You see, earlier, an anonymous call had been made to that hotline set up for public tips in the case. The caller had said that a man named Glenn Wayne Henderson had been involved in the murders. Glenn was an 18-year-old auto mechanic who lived in La Feria. But there hadn't seemed to be any connection between Glenn and Billy or Leticia. And when the call came in, I'm not even sure if anyone followed up on this lead. But now, of course, with the tape that proved that someone named Glenn was present, Ranger Castile went to talk to him. Mm -hmm. And very quickly, Glenn ended up spilling the entire story. Glenn said that he had been friends with Paul Wolf for some time, and he met Sherry through him soon after they got married. He said that weeks before the murders, Paul had begun complaining that Sherry's ex-husband had been causing a lot of problems and that they didn't want him around anymore. Glenn said that two weeks later, Paul asked him to help him kill Billy. Glenn said that Paul was doing all the talking, but that Sherry was present during this conversation and didn't object to the idea. 
At the time, Glenn said that he believed that the whole thing was just a joke. Then, about a week before the murders, Glenn was visiting their home when once again Paul asked him to help kill Billy, but added that they would have to kill Leticia too in order to get away with it. So, Leticia seemingly is just an afterthought. Yeah, that's weird. A couple days later, Glenn said that Paul told him that he and Sherry had gone out to look for good places to put the bodies, and that he'd gone to his father's land in particular to scope it out. He said that Sherry didn't deny it. And then, Glenn said that three days before the murders, Paul came to his house alone and once again asked that he help them with the murders. This time, Glenn agreed. Yeah, so... I don't understand Glenn's perspective. How does an 18-year-old auto mechanic go along with all of this? Like, killing seemingly an innocent woman and this this man who, you know, I'm sure they said that he sound, he's awful and they're having problems with him. But how do, you, how do you go along with all this? Yeah, and that's a really good question. Glenn had actually never even met Billy or Leticia before he agreed to murder them. Well... Ranger Castile, as well as the DA, describe Glenn as gullible and, quote, very slow. And so there is some suggestion that Glenn might have had a cognitive or intellectual disability. Now, very little is made out of this in any of the documents or sources I've seen. But at the very least, it sounds like this was a situation where Sherry and Paul chose Glenn because they knew that they could manipulate him. And Paul was a few years older than Glenn as well, so I wonder if that factored in, as if Paul was maybe somebody that Glenn looked up to. Yeah, it is weird. It sounds like there was specific reasons that they had for picking Glenn. It's just shocking that he accepted to go along with all of this. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we, I think we also have to take into account as well their ages. They're all very, very young. Glenn was 18 at the time, Sherry was 20, and Paul was 21. So... Mm. But also, as we're seeing, and as we will continue to see, Glenn seems to be a very agreeable person, perhaps even pliable. He agreed to a double homicide right away, and now he's agreed to confess to it again right away. He also listened to the tape with investigators, and he provided contacts for what was heard, as well as helped them create a transcript of what was said. He said that the day before the murders, he had met with Paul, who told him that he and Sherry had come up with a plan. They were going to kill the couple the following day when they came to pick up Heather. Paul said that while Billy was distracted, he was going to come up behind him and hit him with an iron bar. He told Glenn that they expected Leticia to wait outside in the car, so they'd hit a hammer in the bushes outside the house for Glenn to use to kill her. On Friday, July 16th, the day of the murders, Glenn said that Paul came and picked him up in his truck at about 6 p.m. When they arrived at Sherry and Paul's house, Sherry was with Heather in the living room, waiting for them. And they basically had a little meeting about how the murders were going to take place. Wow, so they're pre-gaming. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And Heather was right there for this, too, just for all of the planning. Just listening to everything that was about to happen. Yes. Glenn said that their living room had what he referred to as a little seat, which was basically a single-person chair, as well as a love seat. He said Sherry told him that she intended on sitting with Heather in her lap on the love seat, and she was going to put a big pile of clothes on the love seat next to her. She said that Billy would have no choice but to sit in the little seat, 
which sat facing away from a hallway that led to several other rooms and basically the rest of the house. She explained that this way, Paul could sneak up behind him and hit him. Together, they decided that Paul and Glenn would dispose of the bodies and Billy's car while Sherry stayed behind to clean up the blood. Glenn said that he saw an iron bar that he'd never seen before sitting in the kitchen, and they showed him where the hammer was that they'd hidden outside in the bushes for him to use on Leticia. Glenn said that he hid in the bedroom behind the little seat so Billy wouldn't see him when he came in. Billy and Letty arrived at the house at 6.55. Just like they planned for, Billy came inside alone while Letty stayed in the car. And Billy sat down in the little chair while speaking to Heather. After he let Billy inside the house, Paul went into the kitchen and retrieved the iron bar, then snuck out into the living room directly behind Billy, with Glenn following close behind. Glenn said that he stood there and watched as Paul brought the iron bar down on Billy's head and continued to hit him as he fell to the ground. So this aligns with what the pathologist found during the autopsy, that Billy's head was either on the ground or pinned in some way, and that's how all of that damage happened to his skull. Yeah, it sounds like the first blow probably knocked him completely out, and then his head's just on the ground getting bashed with that pipe. Yes, pretty much. Glenn said that Heather began screaming when she saw her father get hit, and so Sherry took her into the bedroom. After Paul finished striking Billy, he then went outside to deal with Leticia. This happened during those few moments of silence that we hear on the tape right after Billy gets hit. Glenn said that after a minute, he followed Paul outside, and he saw that Paul was in the passenger side door of Billy's car, struggling with Leticia and trying to strangle her. Glenn said Paul spotted him and called out him to get the hammer and hit Leticia in the head. Glenn got the hammer, went around to the driver's side, and struck Leticia several times. When she stopped moving, they left her in the car and went back inside. And that's when they saw that Billy was still breathing and moaning. This is when Sherry can be heard telling them to move him to the front door and hit him again. And you can hear the five more strikes on the tape. The plan had been for Glenn to move Billy's car closer to the front of the house so they could move his body into the trunk without being seen. But as we heard on the tape, Glenn told Paul he was too scared to do it. So Paul was the one to move the car. Right. They both carried Billy's body to the car and put it in the trunk. Although it sounds bizarre, I believe they just left Letty's body in the cab of the car as they drove it to the dump location. Really? Yeah. But before they left, Glenn said that Paul went back inside the house and came out with a shotgun. And he also grabbed that big rock from the front of the house. Paul drove Billy's car to the area they'd picked out to dump the bodies while Glenn followed behind him in Paul's pickup truck. Glenn said that when they stopped to put Leticia's body in the canal, they realized that she was still alive. And that's when Paul asked Glenn to get the shotgun and shoot her, which Glenn did. They put Leticia's body in the first canal, and then drove to the second canal for Billy's body. Afterwards, they drove to the drainage ditch, set Billy's car on fire, rubbed it with mud, and let it drive itself into the ditch. When they were finished, they drove to Glenn's house in Paul's pickup and cleaned the blood off of the hammer and the shotgun, and Glenn said he hid them both in his house. Both items were later seized by the rangers, and although it had been cleaned, the hammer still tested positive for human blood. Wow. 
that's amazing that Glenn just like handed them the murder weapons too. Yeah. Any, I mean, all of this, the whole retelling, the all of this information that matches perfectly with the recording, and then also the murder weapons. Gosh. I mean, he really made it a slam dunk for them, essentially. Definitely. I mean, obviously the tape was incredibly helpful, but having Glenn give them more context, help them figure out exactly what was going on the tape. Yeah. I mean... Narrate what they're listening to. Yeah, yeah, essentially. Glenn Henderson, Sherry Wolf, and Paul Wolf were all arrested and charged with murder. Glenn was charged with Letty's murder, Sherry with Billy's murder, and Paul with both murders. In Glenn's case, very soon after his arrest, he pled guilty. He also agreed to testify against Sherry and Paul at their trials. He agreed to this for no benefit to himself. Oh, wow. Not even a plea bargain. No, he received no plea deal, and the judge sentenced him to life in prison. So he is very agreeable. Yes. Uh, okay. I mean, I would like someone who maybe has more legal background to chime in on that, because my concern is if we do have a person who has a disability, and an intellectual or, or cognitive disability, did they get the best representation here? Yeah, I agree. I wonder about what kind of counsel he was getting, if any, at all. Yeah, I mean, did did anybody try to get him a plea arrangement? And of course, maybe we just sound stupid. Maybe there's something we don't know. But I just I have a little bit of a concern there, and I'm because I've heard of people being much more involved in murders, getting deals for exactly what he did, pleading guilty and oh, or yeah. testifying. So why didn't it happen here in 1982? I don't know. You know, I think there's there's definitely questions there for me. Yeah, that is interesting. It's also interesting that Sherry only got charged with one of the murders. Yeah, that's true, too. Now, a few months after all of that, the recording ended up being leaked to the press. Paul's attorney tried to request a change of venue over the matter, saying that there was no way that he could get a fair trial in Cameron County now. The tape was a very damning piece of evidence, of course. The DA, Ray Cantu, accused Paul's attorney of being the one to leak the tape in order to try to force the change of venue. Hmm. So his lawyer might have been doing some subterfuge here with the tape. Well, that was the suggestion, at least. But either way, whoever it was that leaked the tape was never discovered, and all trials ended up staying in Cameron County. Even though Paul was charged for both murders, the decision was made to try Paul for each of them separately. In April of 1983, his trial for the murder of Leticia Castro began. The prosecution explained that Billy, a father desperate to protect himself against false accusations, had ended up accidentally recording his final moments alive. D.A. Cantu referred to the tape as 23 minutes of murder. He also spoke of how Paul and Sherry had used two-year-old Heather as bait and killed her father right in front of her. Because, you know, you asked, why was Heather there? It seems like she was there to provide a distraction so Billy would not think there's anything wrong and not realize that there was somebody coming up behind him. This is horrific. It's awful, yeah. During the first days of the trial, the tape was played in full for the jury. Which is, I'm sure... 
upsetting. It's sure. upsetting to hear this kind of, of tape. And, and this is something we talk about all the time is the effect that these kind of cases have on jury members. Yeah, I hope that there's like psychological counseling for them afterwards. Yeah. With some of these cases that they have to go through. Surely there's, I don't there believe must there be. is. I believe that there's... It should be offered for something of, of these magnitudes and these like brutal murder cases. There's, there should be something like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's something that I think a lot of people have talked about, but there, I don't believe, is currently a system in place for those sorts of things. Especially wasn't the case in 1982 either, I'm sure. I mean, we were breaking down a little bit as you were retelling what happened on the tape, and I can't imagine listening to it in the court. Yeah. Well, Glenn testified for the state, and he laid out everything he knew about the murders. When asked on the stand why he would agree to murder two people he didn't even know, Glenn responded simply, to be a friend. And Kentu also refers to Glenn here as the third victim. So that's oh. how he is described at trial, which is so again... an acknowledgement there that he's been manipulated a little absolutely, bit. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Both Billy and Leticia's mothers also testified, stating that although Heather would cry when Billy came to pick her up, she would be over it minutes later, and she always enjoyed herself when she was with them. Now, although Paul had originally said the murders were in self-defense, his plea at trial was not guilty by reason of insanity. Okay, that's, that's a big shift. How was he insane in the moment of these murders? Well, the defense argued that the murders had not been planned in advance at all but that they were a sudden act born out of desperation in order to protect Heather. And in this case, Glenn is just lying about everything he said, about the planning and the preparation. Yes, okay. exactly. A child psychologist testified for the defense that Heather had been acting out as a result of the visits from her father, as well as having terrible nightmares. He testified that for the child's own mental well-being, he'd advised Sherry and Paul to keep her away from Billy. The defense argued that Paul and Sherry were so torn up about seeing their daughter in such constant distress that when Heather began crying and saying she didn't want to go with him that day, Paul just snapped. So they were trying to use that first part of the recording as evidence of this. Sounds like a lot of BS to me. Three different psychiatrists also testified for the defense, stating that they believed Paul was legally insane the night of the murders with one stating that he had, quote, run out of options and stress overwhelmed him to the point where he had a mental disease. They said that he wasn't a danger to society, however, because the source of that stress, i.e. Billy, was now gone. Uh, okay. I, I don't know if I can agree with their assessment, but all right. Yeah. And it also turns out that Billy was not the only one secretly recording. The defense played a tape that was an audio recording of Heather crying. They said that Paul had recorded it the month before the murders while Billy was picking Heather up. And this was, again, evidence that they were trying to show that Heather did not like Billy and that there was an issue there in their relationship. But there was nothing heard on the tape other than Heather's crying, so there wasn't any way to prove what was going on in the background, yeah. you know? That's also weird that they were recording, too. Like, I guess they were both, like, setting up for this legal battle that you were talking about and the custody thing. Exactly. It is interesting that they're both secretly recording each other. Yeah. Paul himself took the stand in his own defense. 
He said that Billy didn't love Heather. He said that she would kick and scream whenever he came to pick her up, and that she would frequently say she didn't like her father or Letty. He said the stress was intense, and he only had Heather's best interest in mind. He said he'd never planned to kill Billy or Leticia at all, and he'd only asked Glenn to come over that night to help him secretly videotape Billy's interaction with Heather that night. Does this videotape exist? No, it does not. Okay, so... He was never able to produce one. I mean, he's still claiming that he killed them that day, but that it was unprompted. It was not, you know, a planned thing. Now, this is kind of another interesting part of the trial. Paul was on the stand for several days, speaking clearly and lucidly, telling his part of the story. But on day three or four, he began slurring his words, shaking his head, and acting confused while giving his testimony. The judge tried ordering him several times to sit up and speak clearly, but it apparently became so obvious that something was wrong that the judge sent the jury out and accused him of feigning insanity, telling him that any 10th grader could see through his act. So basically he's, remember, he's pleading not guilty by reason of insanity. So the judge is basically accusing him of trying to... Sell to the jury, basically. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. The judge actually told him, quote, Mr. Wolf, if you think you've got 12 fools for a jury, you're going to be sadly surprised. He also declared that due to his bizarre behavior, the court would have to assume he had taken drugs, alcohol, or some other medication before his testimony. And therefore, although he had been free on bond, he was ordered to remain in jail for the remainder of the trial. So just like kind of a weird, bizarre side situation there. Well, as part of their closing arguments, the prosecution pointed out that Paul's new defense was drastically different than his first statement to law enforcement where he'd admitted to murder and self-defense. And they pointed out that his new explanation for the murders, that they were for Heather's sake, only came up after the tape was discovered that disproved that it was in Mm self-defense. And let's just say for a moment that Heather was afraid or nervous around her father. Again, you know, we mentioned the fact that she was a two-year-old girl, and it makes sense that she was nervous or scared around somebody that she didn't see that often, even if it was her father. Sure. You also have to think that from the way things turned out, it wouldn't be shocking to think that Sherry and Paul themselves were encouraging her behavior to try to use that against Billy. Yeah, act out in front of him when he comes to pick you up. Like, scream or get upset. Aren't you going to miss us? Isn't it going to be bad without us? You're not going to have a good time. Even if, and also they're recording this interaction, so they might want her to get upset for the recording. Yeah, sure. And, you know, it didn't even have to be intentional. They might have just been talking badly about him a lot and treating him with hostility every time he showed up. And so she picked up on that. You know, kids are very perceptive. Well, it sounds like they talked about planning his murder in front of her. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, who knows? And and to be clear, throughout everything, Sherry and Paul never accused Billy of any kind of abuse. Their problems were her being uncooperative during pickup and their claims that Billy was being nasty to them. As far as the excuse that the murders occurred in defense of Heather or to protect her mental health, that completely falls apart when you know that they killed Billy right in front of her. Yeah. It was never about Heather's mental health. No. This was... What was most convenient for Sherry and Paul? 
why wouldn't you, if something happened and she was getting upset, why wouldn't you immediately take her out of the room and have a conversation, try and calm her down or something? Like, their defense is crap. Yeah. Well, it seems as though the jury agreed with that assessment because after only 80 minutes of deliberation, Paul was sentenced to life in prison for Leticia's murder. His trial for Billy's murder was set to begin next, but he probably knew that the tape was just too strong of evidence against him. And Paul ended up pleading guilty to Billy's murder. He was sentenced to life in prison for Billy's murder as well, although the judge approved a plea arrangement that allowed him to serve both sentences concurrently. So he's basically getting the same sentence for both murders that Glenn got for one. Yes. Boy, that doesn't seem fair. Well, I mean, there's not really anything, there's not max beyond life in prison, unless it's life in prison without parole, or it's the death sentence. I don't know. I just think we don't need this dude around. And finally, in July 1983, a year after the murders, Sherry Wolf faced her own murder trial. Once again, the jury listened to the tape in full, and once again, Glenn testified against her. Glenn said that while it was Paul who'd repeatedly asked him to help him with the murders, Sherry was almost always around, and she never protested. In fact, she didn't deny going to look for a dumping ground for the bodies, and moments before the murders, she'd sat down and gone over the whole plan with them. He also testified that it was Sherry's voice telling them, get up, get him up, get him out of here, the front door, now hit him again. So there was a lot of overwhelming evidence that Sherry was involved, but that actually wasn't it. The prosecution also produced a receipt for a carpet cleaning machine rental dated July 17th, the day after the murders, the day that they were packing up and trying to move away. Oh, trying to get that stain out of the carpet. Exactly. And that's in her name? It was in her name, and she provided the driver's license ID, yes, to check it out. Okay, that's pretty damning. And finally, a friend of Sherry's testified that in May of 1982, just a few months before the murders, Sherry had paid her and another friend $500 to beat Billy up. She said that she'd taken the money, but had never followed through with it. Oh, good for her. (laughs) Yeah. The defense argued that Sherry had no part in the planning carrying out or cleaning up of the murders, and they also denied that it was her voice on the recording. They actually brought in an expert who testified that, in her opinion, the voice identified on, on the recording as Sherry's was actually an unknown male voice. Okay. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> but the defense argued it didn't matter either way, because even if she was present at the scene, that did not mean that she was complicit in the murders. But the prosecution pointed out that If she wasn't complicit, we would hear some kind of reaction from her once Paul begins beating Billy to death. Right. Like, hey, stop. What are you doing? Don't do that. And we hear nothing. It's complete silence from her. After two hours of deliberation, the jury found Sherry guilty of Billy's murder. A juror would later remark to the media that they believed it was Sherry's voice on the tape and her silence while Billy was being beaten had been the most convincing evidence that she was involved. Sherry chose to be sentenced by the judge instead of the jury, perhaps realizing that a jury who'd heard that horrible tape would be harsher on her. But even so, the judge sentenced Sherry to life in prison. Today, 40 years later, both Glenn and Paul are still in prison. 
Both have been denied parole recently and both have their next parole hearing next year in 2023. It took a while to hunt down information about Sherry, and I ended up having to contact the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. And I was informed by a representative that Sherry was released in January of 2019. Wow, so she's out. So she's out. And most investigators believe that this whole thing sort of started with Sherry. And she was sort of the the mover and shaker, the one making all of the decisions. Yes. And yet she is... She is now out. Yikes. Yeah. And so what of Heather? What happened to her? Heather went on to be raised by Sherry's family. Boy, I hope she's okay. She was only two years old, but there's no telling like what this whole thing had an effect on her. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's why it's so awful to think about that she was just such a little girl and having to see something like that, even if, even being that young. It has to be such a horrible trauma. So I, hopefully she did get, you know, the counseling and, and help that she would need to live with what happened. Yeah. What a tough case, man. Yeah. But I, I think the unique part, as you had mentioned, was the, the 23 minutes of brutality that was yeah. recorded on, on this recording that Billy had hidden. I've never heard of something like that in a case. No, accidentally... Recording your own murder? Uh, I mean, I've I've heard of like cell phones being left on like with other people on the other end of the line, but there's no recording afterwards. Like there's witnesses that heard something, but not a micro cassette of the recording of your own death being found hidden on your body. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. So you can see why I said it's such a unique case. I've never heard of anything quite like this happening before. So when you decided to cover this case, did you know that there was this recovered audio or is it something that you found during the research process? Yeah, so I knew going into it that there was an audio tape involved, but I assumed that the audio would not be publicly available. Yeah. Now, the TV show, when I sat down to start watching it, I I assumed there might be clips of the audio, but I thought probably there wouldn't be any of the audio as well. That's why I was kind of surprised that they featured so much of it. I haven't seen the audio uh, available anywhere else besides that TV show. And it's apparently a show that's called, it's called The Devil Speaks. It's on Investigation Discovery. And it's a show that is centered around audio recordings. So interviews, uh, phone calls, and things like this. So this tape recorder. And they must have gone through the special channels to actually request it to put it on the show. Again, I haven't seen anywhere else. And even when it was released to the public, I don't think any news agencies released any of the audio as well. They might have done some of the transcripts, that that information they got from law enforcement. But the audio itself, I haven't seen anywhere else besides that TV show. Yeah, I guess the title of the show was kind of on the nose. The Devil Speaks. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like one of those like real hardcore true crime shows. Well, um, this episode was, yeah. at least I suppose. Wow, I've never heard of this case or the the audio tape. Thanks for covering it and uh, providing all those details. I know it was really tough, but I did hear you in the other room at some point the other day calling the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, and I was like, I wonder wonder who she's calling and who about, and then we found out at the end of the episode, so that's kind of funny. Yeah. Well, that was a really brutal case. Are you ready for me to tie some balloons to you and lift you up? back up into the sky with some good news sure absolutely all right well we'll do that right after this 
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, everybody, welcome back to the show. This is Good News. And today's story comes to us from NPR, and it was written by Wynn Davis. I was tipped off about this story by an avid listener of the show, Sarah Andrus. And if you would like to be mentioned on the show, like Sarah, one way you can do that is by sending in Texas-specific good news. We're always looking for those stories. Uh, You can send that to allcrimenocattle at gmail.com. And if you do do that, I will shout you out on the show as well. Now... Drought is never good, and neither is getting all of the rain that we have uh, last week in the state of Texas. But as a result of our strange weather patterns, there have been some exciting discoveries recently. More specifically, due to the drought going on in Texas, a long set of dinosaur footprints have been revealed from a riverbed that date back over 140 million years ago. Well, these dinosaur tracks belong to the Acrocanthosaurus, and were discovered at Dinosaur Valley State Park in Glen Rose, Texas. That's about an hour's drive from Fort Worth. As the name of the state park would denote, it is known for its abundant amount of dinosaur prints. In fact, if you visit the park under regular water level conditions, you can actually swim and wade in large sauropod and theropod footprints right in the Paluxy River itself. It's really cool. Uh, It's pretty spectacular when you think about it that you get to swim in dinosaur footprints. Well, these new prints are usually covered with water and lots of river silt from the Paluxy River. But they have emerged and become visible, and since the river is uh, abnormally low, paleontologists from all over the state and even Utah are gathering here to move sediment and reveal the full extent of the tracks of Acrocanthosaurus. These newly exposed tracks present a valuable find for researchers because they are made by living animals. They can tell different things by studying dinosaur footprints than they can from just like fossilized remains and things like that. They can look at behavior, day-to-day lives, um, you know, how many dinosaurs are together in the footprints, directionality, their gait, their stride. And Professor Jerry Harris of Utah Tech University kind of shared those thoughts with NPR saying, you get a lot more information. The posture of the animal, a lot of things that would be much more difficult to pull out of skeletal remains. We can even determine what the speed of the animal was when it was moving through the sediment, how it was responding to the sediment, 
when the sediment was loose before it was turned into rock, it's also possible to determine if there were multiple dinosaurs moving together in a herd and behavior of these animals. As for the dinosaurs that left these tracks, Acrocanthosaurus, this was a theropod, a carnivore and one of the two dinosaurs that make up the majority of the tracks that are found in Dinosaur Valley State Park. A mature adult would be about 15 feet tall, 35 feet long, and weigh close to 7 tons. It was almost as big as Tyrannosaurus rex, and had a very similar appearance. Like T-Rex, it was an apex predator of its time and preyed on sauropods, ornithopods, and ankylosaurus. It had a biting force of 16,894 newtons, which is equivalent to 3,800 pounds per square inch. And you know, eventually the waters will come back and the tracks will be covered again and filled with sediment. And that actually helps to protect the footprints from eroding away. And in fact, the prints in the more shallow water and closer to the bank where people like to wade and play, they actually show signs of erosion and damage from being revealed more often than the deeper prints and also from park goers. Yeah, that makes sense. That's interesting. Yeah. But before the river rises back up and the sediment fills the footprints back in, researchers are working on mapping one of the longest dinosaur footprint tracks ever discovered and collecting that data in hopes of finding out more details about our planet's early Cretaceous period. Oh, wow. So it's actually one of the longest, like, singular trails of tracks? Yes. And it actually kind of uh, opens up some theories about the other sauropod tracks that are going in the same direction uh, down the river. So it might be that these archanthrosauruses are, you know, chasing the sauropods down the river valley or whatever this this sediment used to be, like a mud flat. I don't, I don't know. It's hard to say. It was a long time ago, 140 million years ago. You need a paleontologist <laughs> to explain that part. But it looks like they were hunting the sauropods. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Well, anyways, there you go. There's some dino news. Very cool. Always exciting to have new scientific discoveries in Texas. I love it. Thank you so much. All right, y'all, it's back for the after show. You can find us on Twitter at ACNC Podcast and on Instagram at All Crime No Cattle. And you can join our Facebook group at ACNC Posse Discussion Group. And Shay would now like to read the names of our lovely patrons. That's correct. And if you would like to become a patron and sign up and get all the benefits, extra episodes, swag, and shout outs, you can find all that over at patreon.com slash allcrimenocattle. And we appreciate all of our patrons. And these are some of the newest patrons that have joined and they need to get their shout outs. So we're going to do that right now. We've got Thera Morgan, Ashley, Victoria Beckham, Dee Campbell, Kat Zoltner, and Heather Collins. Thank you guys for joining and supporting the show. And of course, we need to give shout outs to our Texas Rangers that support the show and our special producers on every episode. And those include Amanda Mattaford, Angel Moody, Don Maloney, E.G., Gail Parker, Jamie Gray, Jennifer in Magnolia, Jessica Layfield, Leah Darty, Lynn Shantz, Mickey Sweet, and Sarah Nicholson. Thank y'all so much for supporting the show. It means a lot and it helps us do what we do. As of that, we need to get tacos. We are starving. 
I think I heard my tummy grumble a couple of times while we were recording. So we're off to get tacos. I hope y'all are doing well and you have tacos soon in your life. Always remember, the crime is bigger in Texas, y'all. Adios. Goodbye. Goodbye.